So the everything we have to do is only the one thing we have to do right now. And that's when he's coming. See, that's when he's coming. And then uh, having this oil means doing the good deeds for the right reasons. Not just doing them. Others may be helped immensely by what you're doing. Lord, didn't we do those things in your name? Father, you gave my uh, talk this morning. You didn't realize it. Didn't we do all that, you know? What about this and what about that? And what about the bitterness I cited for people who did all that and then they're done? Let someone else do it. How sad it could be. We could be way up on that pinnacle, like in the ladder of divine ascent, way up there, and be pulled off and fall down. You know, you, you end up, like the Proverbs verse said, at the bottom, no matter how good you started off fully baptized and chrismated by the mitered archpriest, etc., in the holy so-and-so cathedral, founded by, built by the czar, and end up at the bottom. And what about it? So you could do many good things that others are helped by, but you're not. You're not. Christianity isn't a religion where we take Christ's work and, like, use it for ourselves, you know? Like the Grand Inquisitor. It goes in a different direction, but there's that implication that, you know, Lord, we even love more than you did. Because people can't do all that stuff that you, you asked them to do. So we took your work and we corrected it. And so now everybody's happy. They live happy life. So what if it's darkness beyond the grave? How can you judge us? They're happy now. We do not identify with that. The right reasons, that's what saves not only the others, but you. Now, this time of testing is a time of cooperation, obviously, between divine grace and human freedom. We like to use the word in orthodox circles, synergia. Energy, sin, you know, implies a coming together of, of energies, gods and ours. It's very important we hear this uh, it's from St. Paul's letters, and it's in one of the Matins prayers. Working out our own salvation in fear and trembling with the help of Christ, you see. It, and help isn't like, what do you need, 10%? I'll add that in. There isn't any working it out without him. You might say that to um, be with our Lord and all the righteous forever in his kingdom requires that all that we do is all God. And all that we do is all us as well. Both. In some uh, asymmetrical fashion. I think Professor Erickson likes to say it that way. It's not symmetrical. But if we're not in it, then we're not in it. Period. So synergia is a biblical uh, insight into the whole operation we're talking about repentance and salvation and uh, it's a favorite orthodox uh, uh, you know we treasure treasure that uh, insight and hold to it throughout our theology synergia the cooperation between divine grace and human freedom which is God's gift simply how do we actualize God's gifts we're made in his image 
to be like he is. Autonomously? Give me a break. I can work it out, God, you know. Uh, he showed me enough of what it takes to get me through. There's a song I like to sing that has that line in it. It's a little bit more than that. The activation, the activation of the gifts uh, presupposes the action of God. Yesterday I was treated when I opened the New York Times. Yesterday morning, you know, I like to get up and read the Times early. Big human genetic code broken. Oh, Jesus. You know, <laughs> Father Schmemann used to say that an expert is one who knows more and more about less and less. And so then, the, finally, an expert is one who knows every, nothing, everything about nothing, or nothing about everything, however you want to say it. This, what is an expert? If you know more and more about less and less, it means you know everything about nothing. I don't know if that would hold up anymore. It seems we know more and more about more and more. But it, it implies less and less. Will it make us holy people? I mean, what does it have to do with that? It's not even a question. It's secular. There isn't any God unless you need him a little bit to make it through. And then you do that in your own way. Well, thanks to God if you can do that. We understand that the uh, real uh, ground of uh, this, the arena of this cooperation between uh, divine grace and human freedom is the community of the church. And so there's that passage I read from James, and I'm going to go back now and read a little bit more from it. Chapter 5, starting with verse 14, he says, uh, Is any among you sick? Usually this is uh, connected to the sacrament of holy unction. Let him call for the presbyters. Translate modern priests, you know, it says here elders, of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And this is indeed what we do. And the prayer of faith will save the sick man. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And holy unction is, is this uh, uh, inter, intertwining, uh, sort of interplay, can't separate the two, between healing, physically speaking, and healing spiritually of the soul. Forgiveness of sins, what's easier to say? Thy sins are forgiven, arise, take up thy bed and walk. It's all intertwined. And even the sickness is seen as, as a visitation of God to you. We don't identify with those who say, how do bad things happen to good people? It's all foreseen. It's all foreknown. You get what you need. Why do you get temptations? Why do, we, why do we have temptations? So you'd know. You go that way, you're out. you got to go this way. And in case you forgot, here's an example of what happens when you go that way. So you get, and of course the temptations appear very attractive sometimes. No, most of the time. If he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. The service concludes with the gospel being placed over the person's hand like as if it were the hands of Christ himself. And the senior priest presiding at this sacrament of seven, is, I mean, 
the rubric say seven priests, it may not always be that way. Uh, a prayer of absolution, say forgiveness of sins is read. Then, then the verse I cited already, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This tusalilus that I cited, you know, one another, it's a synonymous again for church. It's what church is all about. So the context of this uh, cooperation is the church. Or you have, uh, let me just cite as one, uh, several other, uh, other texts. I just wanted to mention them uh, so you'd, you could have them and look at them yourself. In Galatians uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 1, it says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Look to yourself lest you too be tempted. So it's not like, oh, they fell. That's not my business. You know, it's, we're, we're taking care of it. It's, we're commending ourselves and each other in our life to Christ our God. And then, of course, on Holy Spirit Monday, the day after uh, Pentecost, you have this beautiful reading from Matthew uh, chapter 18, uh, which uh, I'll just uh, read some part of. It begins with, with uh, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. See, Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others. So now it's building it up a bit. Uh, that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, I could be wrong, but I hear now, you know, a kind of sacramental implication, not just a couple people talking, but it's becoming now a formal thing. And if he refuses, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Again, I say to you, oh, let, let me, I, I skipped the verse. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Listen to this verse. And uh, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. It's kind of another simple definition for the church. So that's what the Holy Spirit brings about. Now this uh, power that's suggested here, power or action of binding and loosing in another place uh, in uh, Matthew 16, uh, it's referred to as the keys. It says, I tell you, Peter, I'll build my rock, I'll build my, my church on this rock, the power of death will not prevail against it. I'll give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, this uh, power, potential, this, this fact of church life that's just given to us here has come to reside in a particular way in the priesthood, in the bishop, of course, and, and then his, in his, uh, the priests that surround him. Not a, one person, although there are charismatic figures who, 
who uh, he'll talk with people and guide them in their lives, but rather in the particular sacramental office of priesthood. This particular power of binding and loosing has come to reside there to deal with the matter of sin after baptism. Now we have to ask the question, why? Why is this so? I think that from listening to uh, especially uh, Professor Meindorf, it's not so easy to answer. It's not, it's not easy. It's not so self-evident. You have to explore it a little bit more. Remember, at the beginning of my presentation, I talked about uh, salvation and repentance then, movement towards salvation, change, turning yourself around so you go the right way from the wrong way, has to do with the advent of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God now in our midst, the classic two or three, the church, uh, is what we realize most particularly in the celebration of the divine liturgy, the topic of this week, in the Eucharistic celebration, in the meal of the kingdom, in the Eucharistic supper. Now, at this supper, revealing Christ as the one who presides, no one else ever presides, is the priest or the bishop when he's serving. Even our altars are equipped with antimensia, you know, the signatures, I'll never lose sight of. There's, a, there's one who makes, makes it sure to us that from that time then to this time now, there's this continuity of the one high priest, the only one whose meal this is, whose church this is, who presides all the time. The priest is the one who's there to reveal this presidency, this presiding action, this hosting action of Christ himself. And therefore, he has come to bear ultimate responsibility for the distribution of those Eucharistic gifts, of that meal. It's from that plate, in that place where he presides, that we take our food. How? Uh, how is this, uh, what, what things can I point to from the church life that uh, underscore this even more clearly than what I've said so far? Well, you'll see it tomorrow. There'll be an ordination. And you're going to see that at, after the ordination takes place and the time comes uh, for the, uh, uh, the or newly ordained to take his place with the others, this language is always used in the ordination, in his rank, like, goes to his place where the others like him. The church is not chaos. St. Paul says, let everything be done decently and in order. So the presbyters have their rank, like they go where they go. And the bishop goes where he goes, and the deacon goes where he goes. It's important to know these things, and not to, not to like, blow them off. It doesn't make any difference. They just walk around. It makes a difference. It has to do with this order of church life. So just before he's going to go to that place, the bishop now, the gifts have been consecrated, summons him uh, to the, uh, to the, uh, to the uh, altar uh, table, and he uh, gives him a particle uh, from the Eucharistic, this lamb uh, that has been consecrated. And he says to him, receive this pledge and keep it whole and unharmed 
for you will be held accountable for it at the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this word pledge is parakatathikin. If you look in the New Testament, parathikin, same word, you find it in 1 Timothy 6.20, where Paul writes the same thing. He said, he, it's, um, I'll just translate it from memory. He says, guard what has been entrusted to you. Take care of what has been given to you. Now, what has been given to, to us? What is this? Something dead? Like you preserve it in a pickle jar or, you know, uh, whatever other means we use to preserve it. It's, it's Christ. It's the living Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, just to make sure we don't lose sight of the fact that the church is ultimately, again, God's church, not ours. So no matter what we do to take care of things, he, st his, he still takes care of them. In uh, 2 uh, Timothy uh, 1.12, it says, God himself guards this deposit. So it's not a case like, well, you know, Father Joe wasn't so good. It's not the Eucharist anymore. Can't be this way, of course. So this is Christ himself entrusted to be distributed to the faithful as their, as their life. But John Chrysostom, he says, let me read from his, uh, his uh, six books on the priesthood. He says, uh, um, our present inquiry is not about dealings in wheat and barley or oxen and sheep or anything else of this kind. Here, I want to just say that, you know, you think, well, this, uh, uh, the, the Eucharist is like this, uh, this little particle and nothing else. Listen. It concerns the very body of Jesus. For the church of Christ is Christ's own body, according to St. Paul. And the man who is entrusted with it, listen to this, the man entrusted with it must train it to perfect health and incredible beauty by unremitting vigilance to prevent the slightest spot or wrinkle we hear Ephesians 5 here, or other blemish of that sort from marring its grace and loveliness. In short, he must make it worthy as far as lies within his human power of that pure and blessed head to which it is subjected. So there's like both sides of the coin are covered here. It's the guarding the gifts to be careful how you distribute them. But it's also discerning who's receiving. You can't separate these two. Training them, guiding them, helping them discern, making sure they do this, even if it be in a formal way. Sometimes you're just it's reduced to that level. Because that is, when the priest receives that particle in his, his hand and is told to go by the altar and stand there and look at it, he just sees bread, all the speaker said, you look at it, it's bread, 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 bread. Tastes like bread, looks like bread. But what he doesn't see yet 
are the faces of all the members of his flock who will be that body. They're already in his hand that he has to take care of so that there will be this resonance, likeness between this particle, we say it's the real presence, and this flock, the real presence. How do we know that God has done what he's done? Christ has come and the Holy Spirit is on all as we celebrate on Pentecost. Gregory the theologian says, well, it's from John's gospel. Come and see. I'll show you the Christian people. That's how you see. So the presbyters um, look after all this. It's come to be that. The priest has come to hear our confessions and admit us to the Eucharist, not because he's holier or better, God forbid. Um, there's this, this story of Anton Chekhov called The Murder, and it involves a, two, two, two uh, cousins there, uh, and uh, involves a process that describes all this, how uh, after watching the clergy, uh, this particular man felt, you know that, priest we have, I don't think he's really worthy enough to hear my confession. So I'll look around, maybe I'll find somebody else. So then he goes somewhere else and he says, how's your priest? And they say, well, you know, he plays cards. Wow. Then he goes to another priest, he smells of tobacco. Now he gets really wary and he goes to another place, how's your priest? He's a womanizer. Well, pretty soon, he called, there's no priest that could hear his confession. And what it all boils down to that the only church worthy of you is the one in which you're the only member. <laughs> so the priest, uh, one, this exhortation, one of the exhortations that he says to the person, he says, Lo, I am but a witness. Christ is here before us. That's who we're before. Christ is here. Don't conceal anything because otherwise you could depart unhealed. Now this power of the keys in no way relieves us of our personal responsibilities. Of course, we read it in the beginning from Corinthians that we are to discern and examine ourselves. That goes on all the time. Early confessions were largely public, but not always. It would be an overstatement to say that was the case. And they dealt primarily with major sins, such as apostasy, adultery, fornication, and uh, uh, murder major things. And so, obviously, you could see readmission would be done one time. But sin, hamartia, going the wrong way, is much more than a legally definable crime. In fact, take any of the lists. Here, I just picked out 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 9, and 10. You look at that. How many of these, these things are crimes? It says, uh, do not be deceived, neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor re revilers, nor robbers will inherit 
the kingdom of God. And the list could go on, of course. Sin is a deviation, a fall, a possession by Satan, a sickness. The result is that the church has developed a variety of means to combat it, to heal those caught by it. So we have sacramental confession, referred to as a second baptism. You renew what has been given once and for all. Or holy unction, we heard about that in James. There are temporary excommunications. Of course, there's a huge tradition now in the Orthodox Church of spiritual direction and counsel from gerontes, from elders, starzi. And we can read all that on our own. You, get a, you can have like spiritual friends just in your library. Pick them up and have favorite places and go back to them again and again and get counsel, get strengthened. You have uh, monasticism, of course, as a permanent repentance, which has left us once more an enormous penitential literature. Today's confession, especially since the time of John Chrysostom, is private. Um, he says, I don't ask you to go before everybody else. I don't ask you to do that. Come to me. Just come before me. So Father Tom expressed that. He's, you know, stands for everybody. The one is all in that instance. And it's also confidential. You have, for example, in the, the OCA guidelines for clergy, uh, under confession, uh, it says, the secrecy of the mystery of penance is considered an unquestionable rule in the entire Orthodox Church. Theologically, the need to maintain the secrecy of confession comes from the fact that the priest is only a witness before God, as I've cited from the exhortation. One could not expect a sincere and complete confession if the penitent has doubts regarding the practice of confidentiality. Betrayal of the secrecy of confession will lead to canonical punishment of the priest. And then there are other, I won't read the rest of it, but there are two, two extensive points like that. So it's done confidentially. There's a seal of confession, in other words. And, and this confession today usually includes, usually, both the personal acknowledgement of our sins, as well as our thoughts, our temptations, our dreams, the confusion we have about things, the, the uh, efforts we make to discern all kinds of things, discussion of relationships with people close to us, and usually it includes some or another form of spiritual direction. Mind you, I'll talk about this more, but just let me put it all together for now to conclude that usually it includes all this. I want to conclude this session, however, by saying that eschatologically, we have to still remember, whatever, all this seal of confession, confidentiality, and this and that. I just say this, don't think. People often do. They'll say, Father, I went to confession. You just told my, my confession in your sermon. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I often think that priests have the grace of forgetfulness, by the way. You, you, know, you think they remember all they don't? They don't. No, I, don't I don't want to say they're happy to forget, but they, they just forget. <laughs> it's just part of the deal. 
But we're sensitive, like, you know, you can't have a good relationship with Father anymore. Once I go to confession and this and that, you know. But um, this eschatological perspective uh, really raises questions about all this seal and confidentiality, etc. In Luke uh, 12, let me just read it to conclude this uh, session. Luke uh, chapter uh, 12, uh, verses 2 and 3, it says, um, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. This is why among other reasons, of course, Father John of Kronstadt says, confession is the mild tribunal. Say it's like other sacraments, foretaste of that one. Let me stop here and open the time we have uh, left, I think, for any kind of questions or comments you might have. Okay, go and sin no more. <laughs> we'll come back. Uh, we're, we're supposed to come back at um, 11.30. So we'll do that. And we'll uh, say a few more things, and then uh, those who are here will discuss some more.